Hello, and welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. In today's episode, we will be discussing the novel A Game of Thrones from Chapter 23, Daenerys 3, through Chapter 28, Catelyn 5. These are the corresponding book chapters to the episode 4 of Game of Thrones, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. We will attempt to keep spoilers to a minimum in this episode. However, Jason and I have already read all five published books in the Song of Ice and Fire series, so it is possible we may discuss some spoilers in covering this material. Alright. Once again, we're recording live in person, and having had the privilege to edit a few of those episodes, I know the audio is a little off or a little bouncy or whatever you want to say, so stick with us, folks. In a few weeks, we'll have everything sorted, and... uh, We'll be back into the swing of things. Probably another month of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, for uh, oh, for, for, sure. yeah. for the people listening, yeah, definitely uh, about a month uh, for us, a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, but let's begin with chapter 23, Daenerys 3. Our point of view character is Daenerys Targaryen, and the location is the Dothraki Sea. Daenerys looks out for the first time onto the vast, empty, flat plain of the Dothraki Sea, with Sir Jorah Mormont beside her. Daenerys sees that she has outdistanced the rest of Drogo's Kalasar, who are still climbing the ridge behind her. Among them, she can see her brother Viserys struggling with his riding. The sight brings back the memory of Illyrio Malpatis offering to let Viserys stay behind in Pentos as his guest, which he should have done. <laughs> um, Viserys had refused and insisted on coming with the Kalasar to ensure that Drogo would give him the army that he was promised. Daenerys commands Jorah and the others to wait. Mormont comments that Daenerys is starting to sound like a queen, but Daenerys corrects him, calling herself a Khaleesi. As she rides out alone, Daenerys reflects on how the days of the journey have hardened her body. She no longer has open saddle sores, nor does she suffer unbearable pain after a day's ride. At first, Drogo would ignore Daenerys to spend his days talking, drinking, and racing with his blood riders, leaving her to eat meals alone with Viserys and Jorah Mormont. Yet every night, Drogo would come and ride her from behind. She had been miserable until she had dreamt of a dragon that engulfed her in flame and cleansed her. After that, each day had been easier than the one before it, and she found pleasure in the new sights of the journey, uh, even starting to enjoy the sex with Drogo. Once she is totally alone, Daenerys decides to dismount and take off her boots so she can feel the earth. Suddenly, Viserys is there, screaming and grabbing her. He is furious that she commanded him to stay on the ridge with the others. For the first time in her life, Daenerys shoves him back. For a moment, Viserys is shocked, but then the rage returns, and Daenerys sees that he intended to hurt her badly. Before he can, Jogo's whip catches Viserys around the neck and pulls him to the ground. Her handmaiden Eerie translates for them as uh, Jogo asks if Daenerys would like to see Viserys's uh, would like to see Viserys dead or disfigured as a punishment for his attack. Daenerys declines, but tells them to take Viserys' horse and make him walk, an emasculating punishment among the horse lords. I believe, uh, if I believe, if I remember correctly, Jogo actually wanted to take one of Viserys' ears. Yeah, I, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that would have been interesting to, <laughs> to see him without an ear roaming, roaming around with the Dothraki. Viserys, now recovered enough to shout, orders Ser Jorah to kill the Dothraki, and discipline Daenerys, but the exiled knight makes the decision to turn to Daenerys and agree that Viserys should walk. Daenerys is amazed that she hit Viserys and asks Ser Jorah if she has woken the dragon in Viserys. Jorah replies that her brother Rhaegar was the last dragon, while Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. Daenerys insists that Viserys is still the rightful king, But when Jorah asks her if she would want her brother as king, she realizes that Viserys would not be a good king. Even so, Daenerys remains convinced that the people of Westeros are praying for Viserys' return until Jorah explains that peasants only only pray for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. 
Daenerys declares that Viserys will never be able to retake the Seven Kingdoms, realizing that she has known this for a long time. Viserys could not lead an army even if her husband gave him one. Daenerys races her silver ahead of Jorah and the others. It is dusk by the time she returns to the Kalisar. Daenerys imagines the laughter in the Kalisar when the news spread about Viserys. By the time her brother can return, everyone in the camp will know him as a walker. As she enters her tent, Daenerys sees a finger of light touch her dragon eggs, and for a moment she sees scarlet flames before her eyes. When she touches the eggs, they feel hot, which she attributes to the sunshine during the day. Daenerys remembers all of the stories about other magical creatures and wonders why there should not also be dragons. Her Dothraki handmaidens, Eri and Jiqui, tell her that the dragons were all killed by men. However, her Lysene handmaiden, Dorea, a former sex slave, tells Daenerys about a story about a time when there were two moons in the sky, but one came too close to the sun and cracked uh, to release the first dragons. The story ends by claiming that one day the other moon will crack and the dragons will return. Her other handmaidens make fun of this story, insisting that the moon is a goddess, not an egg. Daenerys sends Eri and Jiqui away, but orders Dorea to stay with her for dinner. When Drogo returns, she takes him outside because Dothraki customs say that everything of importance must be done under the open sky. When Drogo tries to take her from behind, Daenerys tells him that she wants to see his face and climbs on top of him. She rides Drogo as fiercely as she has ever ridden her horse. In the moment of his pleasure, Drogo calls out her name. And on the far side of the Dothraki Sea, on her 14th name day, Daenerys' handmaiden Jiqui brushes her stomach and tells her that she is pregnant. So this is like a, that we have a 14 year old pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, we have to keep in mind how much younger all the characters in the books are than, the, than their show counterparts. And um, not that this is a real world uh, analog to our own, but in medieval times, it would not be uncommon for a 14 year old girl to. No, be, not at all. Yeah, to be pregnant. And, and I think Drogo's only 20, or around 20, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. Maybe, it's not like he's like 30 or 40 and like yeah. older than her, which she would probably have in Westeros if they were still over there, you know. Well, it, more likely to happen anyway. I mean, she probably in all likelihood she probably would have married Viserys. Yeah, that's um, true. In Westeros if like the Targaryens were still around and everything. Barring that though, she yeah, probably maybe. <laughs> she probably would have married Tywin Lannister <laughs> or you know, one of the maybe yeah, probably, probably Tywin. He probably would have tried to get back in with, uh, you know, uh, it, let's say Tywin had come to um, yeah the Mad Ares' uh, aid during the rebellion, and Ares was like, oh, okay, Tywin, everything's cool between us again now. Um, you know, Tywin needs another wife. He probably would have married Daenerys when she turned when she came of age. Um, horrifying to think about, but may, maybe one of the Mart. No, probably not one of the Martells, because uh, Rhaegar was already married to Ilya. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe Rob Stark. <laughs> they're, maybe. they're about the same age, but let's let's move on. Oh, um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, the subtle differences. But that's pretty much the same in the show. There's only a few subtle differences that like. Daenerys orders um, Viserys to walk instead of uh, I forget his name now, but her one blood rider being like, oh, Jogo. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Jogo, thank you. Instead of Jogo making him walk like he does on the show, it, it a little different. It's but... definitely more of Daenerys is in charge here and her narrative, not so much yeah. a narrative going on around her. And her and Drogo having sex out in the open doesn't happen on the show. But it's kind of an empowering moment for her in the book here. I feel like they just didn't want to do that a second time because they did that at the wedding scene. They kind of had them. But it was much more violent. Well, yeah, well, you know. they, they do have the moments of tenderness between the two of them in the show. But yeah, um, I guess we'll move it's on. Not, like the implication here is that they have kind of fallen in love slowly and yeah, that he does care. Right. 
So in chapter 24, Brand 4, our point of view character is Brandon Stark, and the location is Winterfell. <coughs> Bran watches from his window seat as Rickon plays with the direwolves in the yard below. Shaggy Dog's fur has darkened to black, and his eyes are fiery green. Summer has turned to silver and smoke with yellow gold eyes that see everything. That's something, too, that um, I think we might have to do an episode about. We've talked a lot about uh, genetics on the show, and in one of the previous episodes, we brought up how John and Arya look alike. We were like, okay, R plus L equals J people. This is the only thing that we're giving you. None of the dire wolves look alike. They're all different colors. They all have different eyes. They're all obviously from the same mother, but none of them look alike. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. Mm. All right. Summer is smaller and warier than Grey Wind, but Bran thinks that he is the smartest. Bran realizes he is crying. He wants to be down there laughing and running. Bitterly, he declares that the crow in his dreams lied about him being able to fly. Old Nan agrees that crows are all liars and offers to tell Bran a story about a crow. But Bran is not in the mood and snaps that he hates her stories. Old Nan explains that the stories are not hers. They are before her and after her. Bran remembers his father telling him that she was called Old Nan even when he was a child, possibly the oldest person in the Seven Kingdoms. Nan outlived all of her own family except the simple-minded stable boy, Hodor. Bran insists that he hates the stories no matter whose they are. Unperturbed, old Nan offers to tell him a story about a boy who hated stories. Bran does not want any stories. He wants his parents and to run and climb and ride like before. His father had promised that he could ride a real horse south, but then left without him. Bran broods on all the people who had left Winterfell and seemed to have forgotten him. Only Rob and Rickon remain, and even Rob has changed. He never smiles now, and is so busy as the Lord of Winterfell that he has little time for Bran. When Nan offers to tell him about Brandon the Builder, Bran insists that his favorite stories were the scary ones. Old Nan replies, Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Bran listens intently as Nan begins the story of the first time the others came in the darkness of winter. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter came like no other, and then came the night that lasted a generation. Before we get too deep into this story, though, I do want to say that it's interesting that with the Stark family, when you think about it, like, Bran's complaining, like, oh, my parents aren't here, oh, no one's here, no, everybody's changed. That's probably normal for most other wealthy families because a lot of the other families are always at court doing stuff. Like, the Stark's children are very spoiled. They've gotten all of their parents pretty much their entire lives, all of them. Yeah, you're not... They don't have the court life the way other royal families, like other major houses do, so... Yeah, you know, you think about it, like, um, we've discussed how Stannis is on Dragonstone... I can't remember if his wife and his daughter, like, were they just on Dragonstone while he was in King's Landing? Or did they go back to Dragonstone? With, like, whatever it is, like, they travel back and forth. Like, there's there's other examples, but you're right. Like, the like Ned's been giving a lot of leave to not have his family involved. And the children are quite old for not having been at court. They already all should have been presented at court. Mm-hmm. Especially Sansa and, like, Rob. The only way that I can, I'd say, justify it is just because the North is so remote from everything else, so vast, and so that. But you would think Catelyn would have more influence to have had them go somewhere else, to have been uh, sired or whatever you want to say, uh, raised at some other castle to try and. You know, we've even talked that they don't really see the Tullys or anything Mm -hmm. either, and it's fascinating because that's Catelyn's family. Like, you'd think. At least at some point, they would have traveled down right. to see Hoster. And... I think he's only ever met Rob, because like, yeah. Rob was born at River Run. I don't think he's ever met any of the other children. I can't remember. I'm going to have to go over the chapter where Catelyn and Hoster are talking to each other again, but I think Rob is the only one that he's ever met. Could be. Could be. But let's get back into Old Nan's story. 
In that darkness came the others, cold dead things that hated fire, iron, the touch of the sun, and every creature with warm blood. They overran holdfasts and cities, and all the swords of men that could not stop their advance. Women and children were not spared, and the others ate the flesh of children. This was before the Andals and the Roinar had come, when the first men lived in the lands they had taken from the children of the forest. The last hero of the first men set out to find the children with his sword, a dog, his horse, and twelve companions. All of those heroes' companions and even his dog died, and he was left in despair of ever finding the children as the others closed in. Old Nan's story is interrupted by Maester Lewin, who tells Bran that he is needed in the Great Hall to greet Tyrion Lannister and some other and some men of the Night's Watch, who are down from the wall with a message from his brother John. Bran complains that he wants to hear the rest of Nan's story, but Nan tells him that the stories can wait. Hodor, the seven-foot stable boy, carries Bran down to the hall with Maester Lewin struggling to keep up. Rob is sitting in his father's high seat, wearing his armor, with his sword across his lap. Even Bran knows what it means to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword, and can feel the hostility in the room. Rob makes a point of only offering his welcome to the Night's Watchmen. The meaning is not lost on Tyrion, who notes that he is not welcome, and calls Rob a boy. Rob seethes, insisting that he is a lord. Tyrion responds that if that is so, he needs to show a lord's courtesy. When Bran is brought forward, Tyrion notes that the news of his survival was true and declares that the Starks are hard to kill. Rob declares that the Lannisters had best remember that and lifts Bran into the high seat. Tyrion asks how Bran fell, but Bran insists that he never falls. Maester Lewin is quick to add that Bran does not remember. Tyrion calls this curious, then asks if Bran likes to ride. Immediately, the maester insists that Bran has lost the use of his legs, and so cannot ride. Tyrion responds that with the right saddle and horse, even a cripple can ride. Angered, Bran insists that he is not crippled, but Tyrion reports that if that is true, then he is not a dwarf. Tyrion hands the maester a paper containing plans he has drawn up for a saddle for Bran. The maester states that it'll work, and he should have thought of it himself. Tyrion responds that the idea came easier to him since the, since the design is similar to his own saddle. Rob is suspicious of Tyrion's motive, to which Tyrion replies that John asked it of him, and he has a weak spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Yay, he said the episode name. Um, but but uh, Rickon comes in from the outside with three direwolves, who immediately start growling and surround Tyrion. Theon comments that the wolves do not like Tyrion's smell. Tyrion says that it is time he took his leave, but the wolves assault him before he can move more than a step. They are called off in time by the boys. Tyrion finds the hostility of the wolves to be interesting, and states nothing is harmed save for his dignity. Even Rob is shaken and says he doesn't know why the wolves attacked. Before Tyrion can leave, Maester Lewin confers with Rob, who then offers the hospitality of Winterfell to Tyrion. Tyrion declines the invitation as a false courtesy, declaring that he will stay at the inn he saw outside the wall. Rob tells the Night's Watchmen that they have rooms prepared and invites them for dinner. Bran is looking forward to feasting that night with the Night's Watch. In his room, Bran expresses his excitement at being able to ride again to summer. Bran dreams of climbing and sees the shapes of twisted and grotesque gargoyles, and then he hears them whispering. The gargoyles pull themselves free and climb towards Bran. Bran starts to scream, shouting that he did not hear. He wakes up to find Hodor above him. Hodor cleans and dresses him and carries him down to the Great Hall. That evening, Rob and Bran host the Night's Watchmen for dinner. The Black Brothers bring the dire tidings of Benjen Stark. Euron states that Benjen is probably dead, but Rob vehemently disagrees. One of the brothers assures them that Benjen knows the haunted forest better than anyone and will find his way back. 
Bran thinks of old Nan's stories and blurts out that Uncle Benjamin will be saved by the children of the forest. Maester Lewin tells him the children have been dead for thousands of years, but Euron disagrees, wondering who's to say what lives beyond the wall. That night, Rob carries Bran to bed himself. Rob sits by Bran for a long time and tells him that he will find a horse for him. Bran asks if the others will be coming back. And that's a lowercase others in <laughs> others. Rob says yes with much hope in his voice. Rob then tells Bran that he can meet his mother uh, riding his new horse, and later they can visit the wall together. Okay. On to chapter 25, Eddard 5. Our point of view character is Eddard Stark, the lo- and the location is King's Landing. Ned meets with Grand Maester Pycelle in the stifling heat that has covered the city. Pycelle talks about how the small folk claim that the last year of summer is the hottest. The Grand Maester goes on to say that he does not believe this, noting that King Makar's summer was even hotter and broke in the seventh year, leading to the short autumn and the terribly long winter. Then Pycelle digresses about being a young man forging his maester's chain during the reign of Makar. Finally, Pycelle remembers that Ned asked about John Aaron and explains that Lord Aaron was melancholy but healthy, then suddenly became ill. He had asked Pycelle about a book, and Pycelle remembers noting that something was troubling him. The next day, Lord Aaron was twisted over in pain, unable to get out of bed. Ned remembers that he had heard that Pycelle sent away Lord Aaron's maester. Pycelle states that this was because he felt Maester Coleman did not understand the older body and was, and was endangering Lord Aaron's life with purging potions. Ned asks if Lord Aaron had any fi- final words. Pycelle responds that John Aaron called out the name Robert several times, but does not know if he was talking about the king or his son. His last words were whispered to Liza Aaron and King Robert. The seed is strong. Ned asks if there was anything unnatural about the death, and follows up by asking if Pycelle had seen anything like this illness before. Pycelle states that he has seen more illness than he would like to remember, and that every illness is different and yet alike. That is such a non-answer, Pycelle. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know he's... Talk- oh, we know, yeah. but like, yeah. such a non-answer. Right. Eventually, Pycelle says that John Aaron's death was no stranger than any others. When Ned mentions that Liza thinks otherwise, Pycelle says that grief can derange minds, and Liza's mind was not the best before, seeing enemies in every corner. When Ned suggests that John Aaron could have been poisoned, the Grand Maester rebuffs, rebuffs him, asking who would do such a thing. Ned replies that he has heard that poison is a woman's weapon. Pycelle replies that poison is the preferred method of women, cravens, and eunuchs. He continues by telling Ned that Varys was born a slave in lease, and that Ned should not trust him. Ned scarily needs reminding, as he already has a bad feeling about Varys. Ned excuses himself, but the Grand Maester halts him to offer any service Ned may require. Ned uses this opportunity to ask for the book that John Aaron asked for. Pycelle says that it is a ponderous tome of lineages that Ned would find boring. Ned insists that he would like to see the book in any case, and Pycelle promises to send it to him once he finds it. On the way out, Ned also learns that Queen Cersei was not in King's Landing when John Aaron died. Pycelle's parting words are, I am here to serve leading Ned to think, yes, but whom? This man knows that things are going on, and he still just does not. Yeah, it goes to show how bad Pycelle is at covering his tracks that even Ned Stark can pick up on. Pick on what's put being put down here. And like... Yeah, yeah, the biggest idiot in the Seven Kingdoms can figure No, he's still an idiot, because like he kind of knows, but at the same time, it's not like he's... Yeah. doing anything about it. Yeah, he's not asking for another maester to be sent and sending Pycelle away or anything. No. no. Yeah. On his return to the Tower of the Hand, which in a previous episode I was listening back to, one of the episodes that came out, I called it the Hand of the Tower, <laughs> and I didn't even realize it. The Hand of the Tower. Yeah, yeah. The Hand of the... T- I kind of like that, though. Um, but on his return to the Tower of the Hand, 
Ned finds Arya on the steps, standing on one foot. When Ned asks what she is doing, she tells him that Cyril Pharrell says that a water dancer can stand on one toe for hours. Ned expresses his concern about her falling down the steps, but Arya states that a water dancer never falls. Then Arya asks if Bran will come to live with them now, and Ned responds that first he must grow stronger. Speaking of Bran, it leads Ned to recall taking the girls to the castle's godwood to offer their thanks when the news of Bran's recovery arrived. The girls had gone to sleep and dreamed of Bran while Ned stood vigil all night. While balancing on her leg, Arya asks, which is, uh, that, uh, what, that's something that doesn't happen in the, in the show. They don't go no. to the godswood. Never. Well, they kind of ignore the godswood for a lot of, yeah. a lot of scenes that should be in the godswood. They don't really. The only scene that we get is when Ned's cleaning his sword in the first episode. Yeah, when... and like, even then it's not like really explained. Yeah, no. Uh, it's just like a pool that he's sitting in front of. Yeah. And I guess later when. Uh, John and Sam take their vows, but yeah. Um, while ba- while balancing on her leg, Arya asks about Bran's plan to become a knight of the King's Guard. Ned admits that Bran will not become a knight, but he may become a lord, a counselor, an architect, an explorer, or even High Septon. While uh, even while privately noting that Bran will never lie with a woman or father or son, which it's a big assumption. Yeah, man. I. Like, he's still a lord, like... Well, and it's not only that, but it's, like, uh, depending on the type of injury, it can be in it, like, you can use the, lose the use of your legs and still be able to have children. Like, yeah. Like, there, there are plenty of people that have injuries like and that. And again, he's still a lord from a high, like, high-born family, like... Yeah. No, he's not, like, Rob, but, like, he's still going to be worth something to a family of, like low low born family yeah, like exactly yeah you're right when Arya asks if she can do any of these things ned says that she will marry a king and her sons will do these things Arya responds that is sansa not her later ned meets with peter baelish in his solar littlefinger who is watching the king's guard practicing in the yard below starts with small talk about who might win the tourney this does not interest Ned at all, so he asks Littlefinger to get to the point. Ned cannot find it in himself to trust Littlefinger. Littlefinger tells him that four of John Aaron's household are still in the city, which surprises Ned, who thought they had all gone back to the Eyrie with Liza. Littlefinger reveals their names, which include John Aaron's squire, Sir Hugh of the Vale. He also reveals that Sir Hugh was knighted by the, by the king after Lord Aaron died. Ned states that he will send for him, but Littlefinger does not think that that is a good idea and asks Ned to come to the window. Littlefinger identifies some of the spies among those outside the window. One is Varys's, the other is the Queen's. He tells Ned that there are others, and some even he does not know. He cautions Ned to send a man he trusts completely to question these people rather than doing it himself. Even Varys cannot watch every man in Ned's service every hour of the day. As Littlefinger departs, Ned expresses his gratitude and says that perhaps he was wrong to distrust him. Littlefinger plays with his beard and replies that distrusting him was the wisest thing Ned has done since he climbed off his horse. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Littlefinger doesn't hide from the fact that, you know, he's kind of a bastard. Yeah. Our next chapter is chapter 26, John 4. Our point of view character is Jon Snow, and the location is Castle Black. Jon is helping the other recruits with their swordsmanship when Samuel Tarly, the fattest boy he has ever seen, enters the yard. Sam nervously explains that he has been told to come there for training, and Pip identifies him by his voice as a lordling from near High Garden. Sam is immediately ridiculed by Sir Alistair Thorne, who says that they are now sending pigs to man the wall. Although Sam has brought his own armor, none of it is black, so he has to be re-equipped, which requires some ingenuity by the armorers. When Sam returns, Sir Alistair sends Halder, a very strong boy, against him. In under a minute, Sam is on the ground with a broken helm, screaming that he yields. When Sam refuses to stand up, 
Thorn tells Halder to hit him with the flat of the blade until he gets up. The initial hit is tentative, but Thorn insists that Halder can hit him harder, and the next blow splits leather. John's objections are initially stopped by Pip, but after another blow, John shakes him off and states that there is no honor in beating a beaten foe. John helps Sam up, which Sir Alistair marks as defending his lady love. Declaring it as a training exercise, Thorne sends Halder, Rast, and Albert to get past John to beat Sam. John braces himself for a hard fight. Sir Alistair has sent two boys against him before, but never three. To John's surprise, Pip and Grin come to his aid. The boys going against John hesitate, but John attacks. John soon takes out Halder, but not before taking a damaging blow a damaging blow to his shoulder. Then he helps Pip take down Rast. Once Rast is down, Albert yields and Sir Alistair leaves in fury. Halder wrenches off his helm and throws it across the yard, declaring that he thought he had John. John admits that he almost did. When John attempts to remove his helmet, his shoulder is painful. Sam, his head bloody where his helmet had been split, comes over and helps John remove the, helm, uh, remove the helmet gently. Sam introduces himself, and John introduces himself, Grin, and Pip. Sam thanks them all. When asked why he did not fight back, Sam states that he couldn't because he is a coward. John and his friends are speechless. Who would admit he was a coward? Seeing the response of John and his friends, Sam apologizes to them, stating that he, doesn't, he does not like being a coward. As Sam leaves for the armory, John tells himself he will do better tomorrow, but Sam insists that he will not. After Sam leaves, Grin states that nobody likes cowards and is worried what others will think if they are associated with a coward. Pip's response is that if Grin met a bear in the woods, he would be too stupid to run away. Grin insists that he would run faster than Pip, then attacks Pip when he realizes the trick. For the recruits, mornings are for swords play and afternoons are for other work, which is varied so the watch can measure uh, recruit skills. That afternoon, John is to spread gravel atop the wall by himself. This gives him a chance to contemplate Sam. He thinks about Tyrion Lannister's statement about denying a hard truth and realizes that Sam's admission of cowardice took a certain kind of courage. When he enters the common hall where dinner is almost done, John passes his friends and joins Sam, who is sitting by himself. After introducing Ghost and some polite conversation, John asks Sam to join him outside to talk. As they walk, Sam admits that he did not think the Night's Watch would be like this. All the buildings are falling down and it is so cold. John suggests it must have been warmer where Sam lived, and Sam explains that he, has never seen, he had never seen snow until a month ago. John leads Sam to the wall, but Sam balks at climbing the great wooden stairs. John replies that there is a winch, but, Stan, but Sam states that he doesn't like heights. When John asks why a boy who is afraid of everything would join the Night's Watch, Sam starts to cry until Ghost licks his face, which makes them both laugh. They continue talking, and before long, John, John starts talking about Winterfell. John reveals a dream he's been having of returning to Winterfell to find it completely empty. As he is telling about the dream, John thinks about how several rangings have, made, have been made to find Benjen Stark, whose trail just disappears. In his dream, John always finds himself descending the stairs to the crypt in the dark, and it is then that he wakes up. John asks if Sam ever dreams of Horn Hill. Sam insists that he does not, and that he hated it there. After a long silence, Sam tells the story of why he was sent to the wall. His father, Lord Randall Tarley, was disgusted that his eldest son was so plump, soft, awkward, and squeamish. Sam's interest in music, books, dancing, and soft clothes only made matters worse. Many master-at-arms were brought to Horn Hill to try to make Sam into the type of man his father wanted. When a second son, Dickon, was finally born, Randall Tarley gave up on Sam. 
On his 15th name day, Sam says he was escorted to his father in the woods, where he was informed that he would forsake his claim to Horn Hill and join the Night's Watch, or else his father would arrange an accident. John finds it strange that Sam tells the story in such a detailed voice and does not weep even once. John tells Sam about some of the other recruits, and Sam eventually states that he should get some sleep and plots off. John returns to the common room. His friends explain that they did not shun Sam. They were at their places on the bench, but Sam was such a craven that he just passed them by. John persuades them all to not beat Sam anymore, whatever Sir Alistair says. Rast, however, insists that if Thorne sends him against, uh, sends him against Lady Piggy, that he will cut off a rasher of bacon and laughs in John's face. That night, John, with Pip, Grin, and Ghost, visit Rast in his cell. With Ghost's mouth around Rast's throat, John tells Rast that they know where he sleeps. After that, no matter what Sir Alistair does, he cannot get any of the recruits to do anything but tap Sam when they are put up against him. Sam later thanks John and calls him his friend. John responds that they are not friends, but brothers. John now realizes that Rob, Bran, and Rickon are his father's sons, but he has never been one of them. His true brothers are the outcasts of the, night, of the Night's Watch. He realizes his uncle was right and wonders if he will ever see Benjen again to tell him. Aw, look at that. John has grown. Yeah. Okay, but really, when it comes to Sam, like, imagine... Being a dad and being like, I'd rather just kill my son or send him off to my son. Like, there are worse, other things he could have done to Sam. Like, he could have sent Sam to be a maester. There are other things that Sam could have done. He, those weren't the only two options. Like, the options weren't Night's Watch dead. <laughs> like, yeah. well, he could have just renounced his claim, right? And Dickon could have just taken over. Like, there, there's a world in which that is an acceptable play here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, like... And I, I don't know. It's just, I think uh, men like Randall Tarley feel like their sons are a reflection of themselves. And since Randall prides himself so much on being a hardened bat- battle man and Sam is the complete opposite, he's like, no, like, can't have that around. But yeah, like, obviously, in, I mean, even later, like, it would have made more sense for him to be sent to become a maester. Yeah. Like, Agreed. And that it's silly that he would send him all the way to Night's Watch to begin with. Like, I guess I don't. Can maesters give up their chains? Like, I don't know. Can maesters like stop being maesters, or is I that a vow for life? I think so. I think that's a vow too. Mm. That's interesting. I'm, I'm gonna have to look that up. But because I mean, um, we get Maester Eamon talking about the times that people came to him and asked him to, you know, stake a claim. Uh, I won't go into too much of the details, but you know. I don't know. We'll have to see. Let's move on to chapter 27, Eddard 6. Our point of view character is Lord Eddard Stark, and the location is King's Landing. Ned and the small council hear the report of Janice Slint, Lord Commander of the City Watch of King's Landing, about the significant increase in crime caused by the influx of people arriving for the upcoming tourney. Slint requests more men. Ned agrees to hire 50 new watchmen, setting Littlefinger to arrange the monetary details. When Littlefinger objects, Ned insists that since he found the 40,000 gold dragons for the champion's purse, he should be able to uh, scrape together a few coppers to keep the king's peace. Ned also loaned Slint 20 of his own household guard. Ned complains again about the tourney, still irritated that it is going to be called the Hand's Tourney, despite his distaste. Moreover, King Robert insists that Ned should feel honored. Grandmaster Pycelle points out that the Tourney is good for the realm because it, it brings the great an opportunity for glory, and the lowly a respite from their woes. Littlefinger adds that it brings in lots of money, emphasizing full inns and whores walking bow-legged. I know that's your favorite line of Littlefinger's. <laughs> um, Lord, Lord Renly laughs, telling how his brother Stannis once proposed outlawing brothels, prompting Robert to ask if he wanted to outlaw eating, shitting, and breathing as well. <laughs> it is an interesting world that yeah. uh, these people live in where... Stannis is like... 
way too goody of a two-shoes yeah. compared to everybody else. Yeah, he's too good for his own good. If he was a little more malleable, he might have some more friends. But Renly goes on to wonder how Stannis ever fathered his daughter when he goes into his marriage bed like he's marching into a <laughs> battlefield to do his duty. Everyone laughs except for Ned, who is preoccupied by thoughts of when Stannis will return and assume his duties on the council. Yes, because Stannis is still in Dragonstone. Yeah, where he will remain for some time. (laughs) Yes. It is interesting. I don't know why... Maybe it'll be in the next book, but I can't remember why Stannis doesn't trust Ned. Like, I can understand Stannis with everyone else. Why not Ned? <laughs> yeah, but he knows Ned Stark's a good and honorable man. Especially because, like, Stannis was working with John Aaron. We do find that out, that they were yeah. working together for the most part. So it's... Maybe he just hates Ned because Robert loves yeah, Ned like a it. brother. So, anyway. After the council adjourns, Ned returns to the Tower of the Hand, or the Hand of the Tower, whatever you prefer, <laughs> and summons Jory Cassell. As he waits for his horse to be saddled, Ned peruses the book, that John Aaron had been reading prior to his death. Lineages of the Great Houses by Grand Maester Melian. Its reading has proven extremely tedious, just as Pycelle warned, and scarily a man alive has been born when it was written, but Ned is sure John Aaron had his reason for, reason, uh, for reading it. As he browses the section on House Lannister, Ned muses on their long history and the myths of the ancestral Lan the Cleverer, who stole gold from the sun to brighten his curly hair. Jory arrives and briefs Ned on his interview with one of John Aaron's stable boys, the last of the four leads provided by Littlefinger. Sir Hugh proved brusque, arrogant, and uninformative. The serving girl could only say that John Aaron had been reading too much, concerned about his son's uh, fragility, and gruff with his wife. Meanwhile, the pot boy was able to provide lots of kitchen, kitchen gossip, including that Lord Stannis had accompanied John Aaron to meet an armorer about an elaborate new armor. The stable boy proves just as informative. He swears that Lord Aaron was as strong as a man half his age and often went riding with Lord Stannis. Stannis is everywhere, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ned finds this strange. As far as he knew, John and Stannis were never friendly. Jory says that the stable boy also claims that Stannis and John Aaron visited a brothel together. Unfortunately, the boy did not know which brothel. Only the guards that escorted them could know, and they were taken back to the Eyrie with Lady Liza. That Stannis would visit a brothel is very strange because he is so stern and humorless. That Stannis's name keeps coming up, and that he has this—he uh, has left the city with no word about when he will return—also vexes Ned. He wonders why Stannis would leave, and decides that something must have frightened him. Yet Ned cannot imagine what could have frightened Stannis, who withstood the year-long uh, siege of Storm's End by surviving on rats and boot leather. Both Ned and Jory find it frustrating that everyone that might know the truth is a thousand leagues away. When Jory asks Ned if he will call Stannis back from Dragonstone, Ned says not yet. The fact that Ned hasn't already done it, though, is like half the problem here. Like, Ned, you should have already done this when you first got there. Like, where's Stannis? Why is Stannis not here? Yeah, he's the master of ships. Yeah, uh, you should have already called him back. Like, the fact that Stannis already, like... And you're trying to investigate John Aaron and why he died and everything. Like, and now you're coming across the fact that like Stannis should know everything. Yeah, like, he spent all no, this time like, with them. He should have already called him back like weeks ago at yeah. this point. Yeah, it's it's strange to say the least. Ned plans to visit the armorer himself and decides to wear his doublet with the direwolf sigil, so the armorer will know who he is. As Jory as Jory dresses him, Ned wonders why Renly was not invited on the rides. Ned does not know what to make of Renly with his friendly ways and easy smiles. A few days back, Renly showed him a locket with a picture of Marjorie Tyrell. He asks Ned if she resembled Lyanna and seems disappointed when Ned shrugged. Renly has certain plans. (laughs) Ned finds it queer that Renly, who looks so much like Robert, would be obsessed with the lady he thought looked like Lyanna. 
Ned, Ned put things together in your head, bro, bro, like, you, this isn't hard. No. Ned tells Jory that it would be good if Stannis returned for the tourney, but Jory's response makes Ned more certain that Stannis will not. He also wonders why Lord Aaron would be interested in uh, showy armor when he has always considered armor something for protection, not ornament. Ned then tells Jory that he had better start visiting brothels, which Jory jokingly calls a hard duty. (laughs) (laughs) Jory, I love you. (laughs) The, The streets of King's Landing are crowded, but Ned and his guardsmen Varley and Jax make it through the crowd to the Mudgate, where Lord Beric Dondarrion is arriving with his routine to participate in the Hand's tourney. At the top of the Streets of Steel, they find a huge house of the armorer Topo Mott. After shouldering his way in, a serving girl notices Ned's sigil and badge of office, and Topo quickly appears offering wine. Mott immediately tells Ned that his prices are not cheap, but his his craftsmanship is unequaled in the Seven Kingdoms. He adds proudly that the Knight of the Flowers buys all of his armor from him and that he can work Valerian steel. Ned lets the armor go on for a while before he asks if John Aaron bought a falcon helm from him. Mott says that Lord Aaron bought nothing, only wanting to see the apprentice boy named Gendry. Any hint of friendliness leaves Mott when Ned asks to see the boy as well. In the hot stone barn that uh, contains the forges, the armor introduces Gendry and shows Ned a helmet that the boy has crafted. Ned notes that the unfinished helm is expertly shaped and offers to buy it. Gendry immediately grabs the helmet back, insisting that it is not for sale. Mott rushes to offer apologies for Gendry's behavior, but Ned states that there is nothing to forgive. Ned asks Gendry what he and John Aaron talked about. Gendry explains that Lord Aaron asked about his age, if he was treated well, and about his mother. Ned asks the boy about his mother as well, and he is told that she is dead, but she was an alehouse wench with blonde hair. Ned examines Gendry and notices a remarkable resemblance to a younger King Robert, especially his black hair and blue eyes. Ned asks Mott who paid for the boy's apprentice fees. Mott claims that he took the boy on for free since he was so strong. Ned does not believe this for a moment. Mott admits that an unknown lord had paid twice the normal apprentice fee for Gendry and says the extra money was for his silence. Ned decides he likes Tobo. (laughs) Sorry, that just made me laugh. Before he leaves, Ned tells the armor to send Gendry to him if the day comes that he wants to wield a sword instead of forge one. Ned also quips that if he ever wants a helm to frighten children, this will be the first place he visits. As he rejoins the guards outside, Ned still does not understand what John Aaron wanted with the king's bastard, nor why it led to his death. I mean, I think it's funny that he's wondering about it, because it's like, okay, Ned, there can only be one or two things, like, the reason why it would lead to his death. Like, yeah. clearly he was getting to something, and like... Yeah. He's reading these these books about what all the great lords look like, and he's also looking at all of Robert's bastards. Hmm, I wonder wonder what... I wonder what he's thinking. (laughs) Yeah, what... what Like, it's not that difficult. No. Uh, Poor Ned. Well, he was never meant to rule. He was meant to be a soldier, as we know. Um, Ah. But... Ned. (laughs) Yeah. That leads us to chapter 28, Catelyn 5. Our point of view character is Catelyn Tully, and the location is the Crossroad Inn. Catelyn and Sir Roderick are on the King's Road, headed north to Winterfell. It is raining, and Sir Roderick suggests that Catelyn should cover her hair, her head to keep from taking a chill. Catelyn, however, enjoys the feel of rain on her face, and replies that it is only water. The warm southern rain reminds Catelyn of her childhood, with Edmure, Liza, and Littlefinger at Riverrun. Rains are much less pleasant in the north. Roderick states that it would be good to have a fire and a warm meal. Catelyn tells him that there is an inn at the crossroads, only a short way ahead. Catelyn remembers sleeping there many times when traveling with her father when she was young, when it was run run by a fat woman named Masha Heddle. Sir Roderick reminds her that the inn is too public 
and that it might be best to find a small hold fast if they do not want to be recognized. However, when they pass unrecognized by a party of soldiers led by Lord Jason Malister, a bannerman of her father, Catelyn decides that it'll not that they will not be recognized at the inn. And again, this just goes to like Catelyn not taking the kids and not being that none of them leaving. Yeah, Winterfell. Like nobody recognizes the Stark family anywhere. Yeah, and you know, to, like how long has she been up? At least fourteen years. She's been yeah. up north. Who's going to recognize someone that they haven't seen in fourteen years? Like especially when they were. Like a child when they left, and now they're a grown woman. Like, well, not a child, but a young teenager. Yeah. At the inn, they are met by Masha, who gives them only a curious look and tells them that there are two rooms available. She gives them none of the smiles or mentions of sweet cakes that Catelyn remembers from her girlhood. Which goes to show the difference of when she knew, oh, this is Lord Hoster's daughter. Let me give her some sweet cakes and stuff. But now it's just a woman showing up. Eh, whatever. After changing into dry clothes, Catelyn thinks that from the crossroad they could go west to River Run, where she could get advice from her father, who has been unwell lately. To the east is the Eyrie and her sister. Liza might be able to provide some answers, but the road across the mountains is too dangerous. Eventually, Catelyn decides that it's better to continue north to Winterfell. Once past the Neck, they can get aid from one of the bannermen of House Stark. There, she can tell the bannermen to send riders north to Rob with orders to place a watch on the King's Road. Catelyn turns her thoughts to the reliability of River Run's banners. If it comes to war, Catelyn is sure her father will call his banners, but she is not sure they will all come. Robert's Rebellion showed how unreliable the River Lords can be, particularly the Freys, who arrived to the, to the aid their Tully overlords only after the Battle of the Trident had been won, leaving doubts as to which army they had come to join. Ever since, Catelyn's father had called Lord Walter Frey the late Lord Frey. Other banners, such as the Darys, Rigers, and Mutants, fought for King Aerys Targaryen. Catelyn decides that she must not let war erupt. Yes, please remember that sentence later on in this chapter, <laughs> yeah. Catelyn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sir, Sir Roderick comes to escort her to dinner, suggesting they must hurry if they are to eat, and calling her the customary my lady. Catelyn decides that it might be safer to pretend that they are a father and daughter. Roderick agrees, but in the process calls her my lady again and comments on how old ways die hard when he realizes his mistake. In the long and drafty common room, the benches are crowded with a wide variety of people, but Catelyn doesn't see anyone who might recognize her. So Roderick finds them a place by the kitchen, where they are accosted by the singer Marillion, who asks where they have come from and where they are going. Catelyn answers safest of the questions, saying that they have come from King's Landing. The singer tells them that that is his destination for the tourney of the hand. The singer is disappointed when Catelyn has not heard about him and proceeds to attempt to get paid, sil uh, paid silver for a song. Sir Roderick, believing that any healthy boy would prefer a sword to a harp, tells him that he might have a couple of coppers, but would prefer tossing them down a well to hearing the boys howling. The singer then tells how he was made to sing for kings and high lords. Catelyn asks if Marillion has ever played for Lord Tully. The singer boasts that a chamber is kept for him at River Run, and that the young Lord Tully is like a brother. This amuses Catelyn, who knows her brother has hated singers ever since one bedded a girl that he liked. It is then that the door bangs open, and the arrival of Tyrion Lannister is announced, with a demand for a room and a bath for, Tyr uh, for Tyrion. When Tyrion is told that there are no rooms, he announces that his servants can sleep in the stable, and quips that he only needs a small room. When Masha repeats that there are no rooms, Tyrion takes a gold coin and flips it into the air. A free rider tells Tyrion he is welcome to take his room, and Tyrion flips the coin to the man. Tyrion declares that he wants some sort of roast fowl and the best wine sent up to his room, and asks the black brother Yorin to join him. 
Marillion the singer stands and offers to sing to Tyrion of his father's victory at King's, La at King's Landing while he dines. Tyrion replies that such a song would surely ruin his supper. He is about to turn away when he eyes Catelyn and comments that he was sorry to have missed her at Winterfell. Everyone in the inn is ast astonished and every eye is turned to Catelyn as she stands. Catelyn decides to play her hand. She asks some of the men-at-arms in the room directly if their lords are true to her father, Lord Hoster Tolly. The Brackens, Freys, and Wents are all represented in the room, and all answer in polite agreement. Tyrion is confused and asks Catelyn what she is doing, even sniggering at one of the comments. Catelyn then tells the bannerman that Tyrion, while a guest in her home, sent an assassin to murder her son in his bed. In the name of King Robert and the lords that they serve, Catelyn calls upon them to seize Tyrion and return him to Winterfell to wait to await the king's justice. Catelyn dis cannot decide which is more satisfying, the sound of a dozen men drawing their swords or the look on Tyrion Lannister's face. You know what would be more satisfying, Catelyn, is if you hadn't started a war like you had been talking about, like just thinking about a little bit ago. Yeah, like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's... Boy, it, it really, like, this does escalate everything. Like, it puts everything into, because the, you know, Tywin obviously starts raiding River, uh, like, the Riverlands. Yeah. Cersei starts going after Ned hardcore. Like, it, it escalates yeah, like, everything. Her doing this, like, Ned needed another, like, month or two to get the information and, like, yeah. really figure it out and get Stannis back. Yeah. Like, and the thing is, too, is, like, she has no evidence, and she knows that. And here's the thing, too. Like, Baelish might have been on Ned's side then, like, later on. Like, Possibly, yeah. Like, things would have played out differently had Ned been able to, like, rally his resources. Because yeah. at the end of the day, the reason it went the way it went is because Ned really didn't have any backing. No. <sighs> oh, well. Say la vie. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss in these chapters? Or? I'm trying to think about it. like the, there's a lot that goes on in these chapters, but it's all it's all very much Stannis related, like yeah. we talked about. Yeah, you know we get a lot of Stannis in the books that we don't really get in the show at all till like way later. Yeah, I think um, Stannis, especially book Stannis, not so much show Stannis, but I think book Stannis is my favorite character. Uh, maybe not my favorite, but I find him the most interesting. Like, why he does the things that he does and the way that he does them. But And I also think he's the one true king of the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, <laughs> but, but well. yeah, by birth and by blood, or whatever the phrase is. He's, he's not even a background character in this first book, because he's completely absent. But he's a, he's a, you know, I don't know what you would call him, but he's a mentioned he's character. He's clearly a very main player in the yeah. story, like, even if we're not getting him, because yeah. he's in Dragonstone and not available to us. Right. He's still a main player in what's going on. That's very obvious. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, I don't really have any notes about these chapters. Um, yeah, it, they're all pretty straightforward. Like yeah. I said, besides the Stannis stuff, there's nothing really different from the show. And, and besides minor differences... The show pretty much adapted this one for one. Yeah. Like, there's little things like instead of Littlefinger and Ned being in the tower and looking down at the spies in the show, they're walking through a, uh, a, a garden. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, like, he points out the spies. Uh, like, little differences like that. But I think that's just because they play better that way on a show, like, visually. Mm -hmm. I would imagine so, too. Plus, it's probably easier to shoot everyone on the same level rather than setting up a shot of people being up in a tower yeah. looking down and everything. I hit the mic again and you can see the giant <laughs> spike. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's go into the outro. This has been the Once Again Podcast. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts, Once Again Pod, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. As always, a like, follow, or share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you. Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price.
But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description.